0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Ruth Coker Burks grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. When she was a little girl, she remembers her mother, her grandmother, and her uncle Fred all getting into a gigantic argument one day, something having to do with money or property. And then her grandmother died unexpectedly in a car accident.
2: And uh, at, the surf, at the visitation, my uncle was at the casket, and he was like, oh, Mama, I'm so sorry. Forgive me, Mama, and all of that. My mother went running down the aisle, jumped on his back, and they went tumbling down the aisle. And she just kept saying, you blank, you
1: blank. <laughs> Ruth's grandmother was buried in the Files Cemetery in Hot Springs. And then her mother bought every single available cemetery plot so that there was no way Fred could be buried anywhere near the rest of the family. She bought 262 burial plots. Ruth says her mother told her, Someday, it will all be yours. At 10 years old, did you, were you aware that this action that your mother had taken was a little wild? Well, yeah. I told her, I I
2: remember when I was little, I'd say, don't you have a nice watch that I can have or something?
1: (laughs) I don't need a cemetery. Ruth's mother was a nurse. She describes her as eccentric. Ruth's father had served in two wars and died at home on Thanksgiving Day when she was five. She says Hot Springs in the 1960s was a place where people had a lot of opinions.
2: If you weren't in church on Sunday morning, I don't know what you were, but you weren't good.
1: Ruth married young and had a daughter of her own, Allison, with whom she says she went to church every Sunday. She and her husband divorced in 1983, which Ruth says raised eyebrows. And then, when Ruth was 26, one of her best friends, Bonnie, was diagnosed with cancer and in the hospital a lot. So Ruth would go see her, and keep her company. Ruth spent enough time there to get to know all the nurses. During one visit, Ruth noticed that there was a door down the hall from Bonnie's room that had a red tarp over it. On the floor beside the door were trays full of food, just sitting there.
2: And, you know, there'd be breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and no one was picking them up. And it didn't look like the food had been eaten. It was everything was on Styrofoam, and I thought, "Boy, there is
1: something wrong here." Ruth also noticed that no one ever went in the room, and no one ever came out. The nurses seemed to be ignoring it. And, I mean,
2: this wasn't like those nurses. They were kind and loving to Bonnie and just wonderful. But, boy, I'm telling you, they were drawing straws. And so, you know, whoever drew the shortest straw just went about, you know, can we draw the next two out of three or whatever? And then they would just completely ignore the draw and go about their business and never go in that room. So what did you do? Well, I snuck in. I waited for, I just couldn't imagine anything that horrible, I couldn't. And so I just snuck in, I couldn't stand it any longer. There was this young man, I I really couldn't tell, I was, you know, the, the bed, he was so thin and frail and pale, that he blended in with the bed sheets. So I really couldn't tell what was going on until I got up to his bed. And I reached down and I took his hand and, you know, asked, you know, what could I do to help him? And he said that he wanted his mama. And I thought, well, yay, now I can do that. So I went out and I didn't plan on going back in the room. I just, you know, thought, hey, we can call, they can call his mother and this will be solved and I can go back to sitting in there with Bonnie. So I went up to the desk and proudly announced that he needed his mother and they backed up. And they said, you didn't go in that room, did you? And I go, well, yeah, I did. And, you know, he just wants his mother. And they said, honey, his mother's not coming. He's been here six weeks, nobody's coming. And don't you go back in that room. And uh, they weren't gonna call. And I said, well, could I have his mother's phone number and let me try? They just stood and looked at me. And some one of them slid his number across the desk at me and uh, walked away.
1: The man's name was Jimmy. Ruth Coker-Burks took it upon herself to call Jimmy's mother. And when the woman answered, she said, I don't have a son. My son's been dead for years. And then she hung up.
2: So I called her back and told her, and I didn't know what was wrong with him. Um, And it wasn't called AIDS at that time. It was the gay cancer or that gay disease. Anyway, I called her back. And she said that, you know, her son was a sinner and caused so much angst and pain that she didn't want anything to do with him. And even when he died, she didn't even want to know it. And that was it. That was the conversation and she hung up. And I thought, oh man, what am I going to do now? And those nurses were standing there just staring me down because they wanted to know you know, what was going to happen. And I went back. I went in his room, and he looked up at me, and he said, oh, Mama, I knew you'd come. I said, I'm here, honey. I'm here. I'm not going to leave you.
1: Ruth sat with Jimmy for the next 13 hours. He died just before midnight. She remembers the nurses asking her, what are you going to do with him now?
2: And I go, me? Why me? And it was kind of like, what, you know, why not me? So I uh, called the uh, funeral homes in Little Rock, thinking nothing of it. I called, you know, the most popular one, and they, everybody told me no.
1: None of them would take Jimmy. They wouldn't take anyone who died of AIDS. So Ruth called a funeral home a little further out of town
2: and they said they would come and get him but they would have to you know have a protective equipment on and they wouldn't touch the body and they there was no service just cremation direct cremation and I said well that's that's exactly what I'm looking for so they came and took him and i uh, stayed with him you know a lot of the time i don't i just couldn't leave him and they finally you know made it up there and I was sitting home one Saturday, and the mail arrived, and there was a cardboard box from the post office. I thought that was a kind of strange. I didn't order anything, and I opened it, and there were his ashes. What did you decide to do? Well, I didn't know what to do. And the city cemeteries, you know, they wouldn't take him. But I had been telling him— while he was dying about my cemetery.
1: The 200-something plots Ruth's mother had bought at File Cemetery.
2: It's on a little hill, and uh, it has beautiful, it's about an acre maybe, and it has beautiful old pine trees in it, and there's one magnolia tree that takes up about the bottom half of the cemetery and it has a lot of old oak trees, and everybody wants to be buried under a tree. And I told him, I said, you know, my daddy's buried there, and I can put you there, and it's close to the road, so you can watch everybody, you know, come and go, and know what's going on, and my grandmother's there, and these people will love you and take care of you.
1: I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Initially, the CDC referred to AIDS as gay-related immune deficiency, or GRID. In May of 1982, the New York Times reported that GRID had reached epidemic proportions. The CDC adopted the term AIDS shortly after. In October of 1982, a reporter named Lester Kinsolving asked then-President Ronald Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, about it. You first hear the reporter, and then the first thing the press secretary says is, What's AIDS?
3: Does the president have any reaction to the announcement yeah. of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? What's AIDS? Uh, over no a third I'm of them have died. It's known as gay plague. What? <laughs> No, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died. And I wonder if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? Well, you don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry. I, I'm do you? Delighted. No, you I didn't, didn't answer my question. Well, I just How do you know? Does the president? In other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. Does will the we... president, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's Nobody been any... Knows. There's been no personal experience here, Lester.
1: And then, two years later, almost the exact same exchange took place.
3: Is the president concerned about this subject, Larry? That I it seems to have to heard him express concern. Judges? Reaction here. I, you know, I haven't heard. It isn't him only the jocks, Lester. Has he sworn off water flosses? No, down? but I mean, is he going to do anything, Larry? I, I, Lester, I have not heard him express anything. I'm sorry. You mean sorry. he has no, uh, no expressed no opinion about this epidemic? No, but I must confess, I haven't asked him about it. Would you ask him, Larry? Go back into this problem. Gonna, have you been checked? The president, going to the bathroom. What, I didn't hear him. the answer. Uh, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hard work. <laughs> I don't get paid enough. Um, Else we need to
1: do here. Support for this is love comes from indeed. Hiring someone new can sometimes feel like finding a missing puzzle piece. The right person can complete a team, but the search can take a long time, and sometimes it feels entirely up to chance. Indeed is designed to help you find that perfect match much easier and much faster. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences for job candidates and becomes more accurate over time. That means the more you use it, the better it gets. You also don't need to worry about the busy work of hiring. Indeed will help you with scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash love. Just go to indeed.com slash thisislove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash love. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: A few weeks after Jimmy died, Ruth Coker-Burks says she got another phone call. It was from a different hospital. They'd heard how she had sat with Jimmy.
2: They called and they said that they had somebody up there that they thought was mine. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't have anybody in the hospital. Well, we think he's one of yours. So would you come up here and he needs to get out of here.
1: So Ruth went to the hospital, St. Joe's. A nun took her to see a man who, like Jimmy, seemed very close to death. She stayed with him until he died several hours later. Ruth started getting more and more calls. She says many of the men were already close to death, but their families wouldn't come see them. Even when they died, no one showed up. So Ruth would take their ashes to her cemetery.
2: At first, I was kind of burying them by the dark of night because I was so afraid that somebody would see me do it. I finally realized that if you act like you're planting flowers, then nobody bothers
1: you. Even though it was your cemetery, you were still worried. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. There's some other people that are buried there that that have their name on the gate, and uh, they think it's their cemetery. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to fight with them. But they could have really caused a lot of
1: problems. Why were you so afraid of people seeing you bury these guys in the cemetery, a cemetery that you you rightfully owned? Right. Well, I
2: was afraid that someone would vandalize, you know, some redneck would go and dig up the ashes and wreck the cemetery and break monuments, because I had seen that done before in another, you know, part of the country, and I didn't want that to happen. You know, I just had to be very careful in the beginning. And I also thought, what am I going to do? I don't want anybody to know I'm doing this, because there wasn't a judge alive who wouldn't have taken my daughter from me.
1: Why do you say a judge would take her away? Oh, because I
2: had her, number one, around gay men, and number two, around a deadly disease.
1: Ruth's daughter, Allison, was three, and Ruth was afraid she could lose custody. So they would say in some way you were putting her in harm's way, you were endangering her? Yes,
2: absolutely. And then it was immoral for me to be around gay men.
1: But the calls kept coming, and she kept going to the hospital. Sometimes she brought books to read to the men, at first novels. Then she found an old travel guide about the Florida Keys. She'd tell the men about coral reefs, dolphins, and white sand beaches with bright blue water. She says... We'd leave whatever hospital we were in and go somewhere beautiful, away from trouble and worry. By the end of summer 1986, Ruth says she'd buried eight men. She says the hospitals started giving out her phone number.
2: The hospitals just said, here is this crazy woman in Hot Springs who's not afraid of you. Go see if she can do anything with you, but don't come back here. I started getting these phone calls from people. And sometimes they'd be at five o'clock in the morning because they had waited all night to call me and couldn't uh, wait until, you know morning time. They were just so anxious. And people just started calling and calling, and they just kept coming and coming. and I didn't know what to do. I'm not a nurse. My mother was, but I'm not
1: still. Ruth found as many ways as she could to take care of the men who called her. She would cook huge meals and drive around hot springs delivering food. She didn't have a lot of extra money to spend, but she got creative. If she saw a peach tree on the side of the road, she'd pull over and pick enough peaches to make a cobbler. Ruth's cousin raised cattle and would give her leftover cuts of meat. And her neighbor had a large garden and often gave Ruth extra vegetables. She started visiting men at their homes. Around Christmas time, she put a tree and decorations into a pickup truck and drove to Little Rock, to a house of some friends living together. She says, I wanted them to have something for their last Christmas. What would they say to you about their about their families?
2: Well, they would, you know, say what happened is they would move off to the coast like San Francisco or New York or Little Rock just to get out of the little country towns and, you know, any place to get out of their hometowns because their families didn't want them there just because they were gay. And when they came down with AIDS, they really didn't want them.
1: A lot of the men returned to the area anyway, hoping their families would reconsider. And when that didn't work out, Ruth tried to be as helpful as she could. She'd help them find places to stay, drive them to doctor's appointments, pick up prescriptions. Did people in your church community ever say to you, I mean, did anyone ever kind of quietly whisper to you, don't tell anyone, but I support what you're doing and I'd like to quietly help in some way?
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I knew who in town to go to for help. And I tried to never wear anyone else out by going to them more than once, you know, every now and then. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of people that did that. And, uh, you know, everything I did was don't tell. Don't tell anybody. Okay, I
1: won't. (laughs) <laughs> just just hand over the help. I won't tell right, anyone. Just
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> open your chest. Fork chuckle. it over. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's it. Fork it over.
1: A lot of men told Ruth that they'd been afraid to be seen getting tested for AIDS, and they didn't know they were sick until the illness progressed. So Ruth learned how to draw blood. She began to offer to collect blood discreetly in the privacy of someone's home and drive it to a lab herself, so people who wanted to be anonymous could be. Often, Ruth says, they became good friends. There was Chip, who came back to Hot Springs from Washington, D.C., where he'd worked for the Democratic Party. Ruth remembers that Chip said he didn't love kids, but he got along well with Allison, who was in elementary school. They watched television together, taking turns holding Ruth's cat. A man named Angel asked if he could choose where in her cemetery he would be buried. She said, you go out, and wherever it feels right, that's where you'll be. In the summer of 1989, Ruth met a bartender named Paul. Paul invited Ruth to a drag show at his bar that upcoming Saturday night.
2: I had never seen a drag queen before, and so that's how I met Billy. He was Paul's love of his life. And Billy was just magical. He was the most beautiful man and the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in one person. And I knew I was where I needed to be.
1: Did you kind of feel like you had been led into a secret world somehow?
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Billy was from a small Arkansas town about 50 miles from Hot Springs. He was 21 years old and the lead performer at the drag show that night. Ruth says the whole crowd, at least 100 people packed in the bar, leaned forward when Billy came out. Paul and Billy took Ruth to Little Rock to a gay bar called Discovery. It was owned by a man named Norman Jones who hosted big popular drag shows and all the proceeds would go to support the community.
2: If somebody needed rent or they needed, you know, anything, their utilities paid or their medication paid for, and we would get that taken care of. 100% of the money that came in went back out to direct services.
1: Ruth was moved by how much these men showed up for each other, in a part of the country where she says gay men couldn't even get someone to come over to repair their air conditioning. She and Paul and Billy became close friends, especially Ruth and Billy.
2: You know, I remember our picnics out at the lake that we'd go and sit out there and, you know, watch the boats pass and talk about where they're going and what they're doing. And, you know, we would talk about something he had just ordered for drag and he would, you know, tell me all about that. And We would gossip about what was going on with who and who said this and who did that. And, you know, it was just those fun times. We'd talk about, you know, his life and what he was doing. And, you know, it was just great times with him.
1: And then Billy tested positive for AIDS. Ruth remembers taking Billy to the doctor shortly after his diagnosis. They were both in shock. Then they drove past a tourist place where you could ride an elephant. Billy said he'd always wanted to do that. Ruth immediately turned the car around. Whatever you want to do from here on out, she said. Around this time, Allison's fifth grade teacher invited Billy to come and speak to her class about AIDS. Ruth remembers he told the class, No matter how lonely you feel, there's always someone who wants to help. Sometimes it's a stranger. At Billy's final drag show, the audience was on their feet clapping the moment he walked out. The music hadn't even started.
2: And he could still hold an audience, and he, there would be two lines of people up at, all through that bar just to hand him money on that last show, and he could still work a room, I'm telling you. But people came to Paul, and they go, why do you let him get up there? He's so skinny. Why do you let him do that? And Paul said, because he wants to. And it it keeps him living. So what difference does it make?
1: Near the end, when Billy wasn't really talking anymore, she and Paul sat with him. She remembers the last time she saw him.
2: And I just told him how much I loved him, and what a magnificent human being he was, and how much everybody loved him, and we were going to miss him. But I would never forget him, and I would never let the world forget him
1: when Billy died, he left Ruth a red gown, one of his favorites. you know why do? Why do you think you did this? This must have been such exhausting work,
2: sad work. It's what the Bible tells you to do. It was just what you're supposed to do. It's what everybody should have been doing.
1: You sat with people as they were dying, even people that you didn't know that well or hadn't known for that long, but there you were. what 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 is that like?
2: Well, I was very familiar with death because we kept our family members at home while they died. So I knew what death was. And then, you know, we kept Daddy home until he died. And so I, I, you know, I was comfortable with death. And um, I would sit in there and, you know, many of them were past talking or anything. And I would still feel like I needed to, you know, sit there and, visit with them and you know tell them stories about what was going on hearing is the last of the senses to go they say and i wanted them to know that there was another human being with them while they died i just wanted them reassured and i would tell them that i would i always felt like i was taking them across the river of death i would carry them across, and I would hand them over to the people who loved them and didn't judge them, and I would hand them back over to God and to their friends that loved them, and, you know, then I would turn around and I'd be back on dry land.
1: I wonder if you could describe what the cemetery looks like on the most beautiful day, at what time of day, when you're thinking about this resting place for not only your family, but your friends, what do you? What time of day, what time of year do you envision in the cemetery, and what does it look like? Oh, you know,
2: I like to go in the evenings in the summer, right after a heavy rain, and uh, the trees are all still, you know, wet, and they'll drip on you, but It's so fresh and clean, and it's about, oh, maybe a half an acre that sits in the heavy curve of a road up on top of a little hill. And it's filled with oak trees with this one ginormous magnolia tree in the south part. It's very comforting, and I'm very proud of the people in that cemetery. You know, I learned more from them about living than I ever learned about dying. They were the most amazing men in the world. They were so courageous and they were so wonderful and I didn't want them to ever be forgotten.
1: This Is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nidia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Audio mix by Michael Raphael, Johnny Van Evans, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. This Is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. We'll be back in a few weeks. I'm Phoebe Judge. And this is love. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.